Cool.fm is the perfect station for music lovers who enjoy a mix of adult pop, modern country, and classic hits. Our unique blend of different genres creates an awesome listening experience that you won't find anywhere else. With Cool.fm, you don't have to constantly change stations to hear the music you love. Just download the Live 365 app and start listening to our curated selection of modern adult and country hits, as well as the classics you know and love. So tune in to Cool.fm and start enjoying the best of all your favorite music in one place. Hey, I am Van Jensen, the writer of comic books like The Flash, Green Lantern, James Bond, Superman, and Arca. You can find me at vanjensen.com or on social media, van underscore Jensen. And you are watching and listening to Two Geeks Talking. Good morning, afternoon, evening, everyone. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we interview the creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We are joined today by one of the most multi-talented creative people that I've had on the show in a while. He has written everything from James Bond to Green Lantern to The Flash to his own works, as well as what we're going to talk about today, uh, Arca, and many other things I'm sure he'll let us know about because I can't read through his biography and list everything or else we'd be here for hours but we are joined by the ever talented van jensen how are you doing today i'm good i'm good thanks for having me on for those that don't know anything about yourself as a creative person tell us who you are and what you're bringing to two geeks talking i i kind of am uh i guess uh, at heart and like and remain just this kid that i grew up in a, a town of 300 people in western nebraska there wasn't much to do. Right. So I, I loved just like drawing and telling stories. And we had a grocery store called the store because like there's one, right. And they, they would order comic books for me. And so, yeah, I just like, I fell in love with comics and then eventually like I was in journalism and then uh, eventually created a book and just kind of kept, kept going. And I think there's, there's like a lane that you can get into. Like, I'm just going to do these very particular kind of comics and for good or for bad, something I'll say for myself is that I, I like to really explore very different things. Yeah. When you look at my resume, it's like, Oh, the, hopefully like a lot of books, but also like that's a very wide, uh, broad swath of stuff. I was going to say it's it's the most eclectic collection of uh, various genres of comics that I've ever seen to the point that I don't even know how I can really ask my question here, but I'll form it this way instead that I normally ask is, you know, what is the most misunderstood aspect about being a writer that people who aren't writers or authors don't understand? <laughs> Maybe it's that people think it's really... Is that is that terrible to say? Sorry, you, you kind of cut out there. Oh, sorry. Um, I I think that people people sometimes just think that it's really fun to write comics, and it is, it is. But it's also it's it's a lot of work. I I think people kind of maybe come into it or or they ask me, it's like, oh, like you're just basically like playing around all day long. It's like, no, it's it's a real grind, but in like the most fun grind kind of way, comic books, every single issue, it's, it's almost like an engineering puzzle that you have to put together. And did you get a degree in engineering or <laughs> no, 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 no. Homeschooled on engineering. <laughs> 
uh, from what you enjoyed and loved as a kid is I'm sure transitioned well into your current career, obviously, for sure. You know, out of everything that you've drawn, and James Bond, actually, I didn't even realize that you had uh, done a graphic version of that. That's uh, that's amazing because I, I grew up reading the, the the novels and the books like that as well. And in, I devoured them in my local library type thing. But yeah, to draw them, I mean, that must have been, or to work with that series and to bring it to graphical format must have been amazing. Yeah, it was surreal because I was, you know, I was working with Dynamite Comics and then working with the Ian Fleming estate. So this is like, this is his family. Um, it was his nephew, especially. So what I was doing was taking, I took the first two novels by Ian Fleming and adapted them into graphic novels. And it's just, it feels very surreal. I mean, I, I grew up, I read the novels, not all of them, read some of them. Um, and of course, watched the movies and in such a seminal major figure. And then now I'm, I'm having a voice in it. And, and there were really cool creative challenges too. Like, so the first book, Casino Royale, like it, it has the, the book has the scene where Bond is tortured, right? And to be blunt, like his man parts are pummeled <laughs> repeatedly. And then after that, there's two chapters that just take place. And it's just James Bond in the hospital thinking about like, am I, am I still a man after this? And the family was really specific about like, don't, don't change too much. And so I was just sitting there, I was like, how do I make this visual, right? Like, how do I come up with an idea to not just have, you know, like bond in a, a bed, bond in a bed, bond in a bed, like again and again and again. And so finally I had the idea as, as he's, you know, sitting around like moping about impotency to have a two page spread and it's his iconic handgun that's like disassembled in three dimensions with narration about impotency over the top of it. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of like fun creative challenges that you get into where it's like, Oh, this seems impossible. And then, all right, like, let me, let me push this to the most creative place. That, that alone. And then looking into everything else that you've, you've worked on here, how did that type of challenge inform say your other works with either DC or with your current projects like Arca? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, working for DC, it's, it's really, it has its own restrictions in that, you know, it's, you take a character like the flash, you know, it's like this character has been around for 80, 90 years. And the job that you're given is like, so don't change anything, but do something that's never been done before. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, uh, it's not, not the easiest thing to come up with that. And then, yeah, creator-owned stuff like Arca, and Arca is a sci-fi story um, that's coming out in July from IDW Originals. Hmm. And it kind of imagines like the world's billionaires or ultra billionaires have this plan for when the world ends, like this is what we're going to do. Like we're not only going to survive aboard this ship called the Arca, but we're going to maintain our quality of life. And, and the way that we're going to do that is we're going to have these children and teenagers that are essentially like indentured servants or slaves. And the story is really about one of these kids who starts to figure out like the story that these people are telling us doesn't totally make sense. 
those books are really exciting because they come up, the ideas come up and it's like, man, I could take this anywhere. I could really like go so many places with it. And then you, you kind of have to, to create your own constraints. You have to limit yourself because comic books, the, the biggest thing with them is just the space goes really quick, right? It's hard to tell a big, you know, it's like a big story. You have to be very efficient. And so I always focus on who are these characters? Like what means a lot to them? What's the the sort of emotional journey that they're going through and making sure that that always shines through. Do you think that's a strong point about your creative process is the fact that you really dive into your character development and then you build the worlds? I don't want to say anything in regards to, uh, you know, whether or not anyone else (laughs) does that. I certainly think, you know, kind of creative works broadly, that's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's just, it's all about how does this story make you feel? And so I want to be emotionally moved. I write something. So my very first novel was Pinocchio Vampire Slayer. It was the artist, uh, Dusty Higgins, who he came to me, he had had this idea and he was like, you can write, like you could write this book. And my initial reaction is like, man, that premise sounds dumb. Like That sounds so bad. Well, you know, it's like a per- one panel gag cartoon. We went back to the original Pinocchio story and what hit me was that Pinocchio in the original book, uh, which was written in the 1880s, he's a jerk really selfish. He's just like, he's a terrible kid. And then it struck me like, okay, well, you take this kid that's really selfish that just wants to do his own thing and then force him into a situation where he's the only one who can save the world. So he's like the least responsible kid that has all of the responsibility thrust onto him. And then that was, that was just really compelling to me. And that book, it ended up being a trilogy um, like there's a collected edition. It's like 500 pages. I, I mean, Lord knows why I made 500 pages of, of that. But something I'm really proud about is that the end of that trilogy, like the story actually ends. It is a real conclusion. And whenever I'm at a show, invariably, I have a handful of people that come up to me and they're like, man, that book made me cry at the end. Like, how on earth did you make me cry at Pinocchio Vampire Slayer? And I was like, ah, I guess I, I guess I did my job then. That's awesome. Does writing energize you or does it drain you then? I get a ton of energy from it. I've got young kids, so I'm not going to say my energy level is like particularly high <laughs> as, as a matter of course. Man, I mean, I love my kids. Parenting is great, but it's exhausting. And I think I had some years where I was, I was just like, not, you know, not all the way there. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, I've had a really fun run of, of the stuff that I'm working on and some great creative partners. And, and so I, I, yeah, I just like, I feel, um, you know, I'll sit down and like something, some idea hits me and I, and I just like, crack myself up and like maybe that's weird uh i don't know but when that happens it's like all right i think if it's hitting me this way it's going to hit other people that way and like that that gives me a boost for you know whole day one of the newer projects that we kind of talked about before we started here tell us about this brand new anthology that just sparked the internet of fire <laughs> so coming on the Zoop platform, which is uh, zoop.gg is the uh, the URL of it, um, which is a, a comic book specific crowdfunding platform. 
we're doing this this hardcover anthology about Stardust the Super Wizard. For those who are not familiar, Stardust was created in 1939 uh, by a writer artist named Fletcher Hanks. So this was the era like Superman had just been created, you know, uh, early golden age. All these other publishers want to have their Superman. And so Fletcher Hanks was given the task of, you know, creating a new superhero. So he creates Stardust, who is an alien of, uh, you know, background that doesn't ever totally make sense. And he comes to Earth and he's just like laser focused on killing racketeers, <laughs> like very specifically racketeers. And, you know, part of it is like the comic is drawn in this way that it, it looks like underground, like Zap Comics, but this is decades before Zap Comics existed. But then the comics are so just insane. I mean, they're just insane. Like Stardust will enact these punishments on people that are like really horrific, like Edgar Allan Poe stuff, but also with this sci-fi bizarre, like I was telling you, like he rips a guy's head off magically makes the head grow into a boulder. Then he throws it into outer space. It flies through space, lands on an alien planet, and then an alien eats it. <laughs> so I had come across these comics and then uh, Fanagraphics published a great collection of pretty much all of Fletcher Hanks' known comics. I talked to them. They're reprinting it this year. Um, and, and so I was just obsessed with it. And, kind of on a lark, I posted on Twitter and I was like, Hey, does anyone else love Stardust, the super wizard? And like, I think we should do an anthology. And I had, I think I had like 400 people reach out to me and it's like huge names, you know, just huge, huge people within comics. It kind of very quickly went from like a Twitter goof into, Oh, I'm now editing an anthology featuring you know, 20 or 25, you know, these incredible comic book creators and wrangling all of that. And so thankfully, Zoop has been this great, great partner in it. So we have like Pete Woods, Mike Allred, Ron Mars, Francesco Francavia, Jeff Parker, Jeff Parker and Tom Fowler are doing a story together, Cecil Castellucci. I can't possibly remember everyone. It just, it goes on and on and on and on. It's just really fun in that the creators are embracing how bizarre these old comics were. And I think they're all, you know, it's, it's kind of like you have this voice as a writer that's like your rational voice. It's like, well, that doesn't totally make sense. Like we have to make things make sense. In this comics is like, it doesn't have to make sense. It just needs to be like as fun and as creative and weird as it can be. So yeah, we just have some wild, wild stuff coming. And we also have the first ever comic by Ian Hanks, who is Fletcher Hanks' grandson. That has a deep level of meaning. I mean, of course, the, the comics are public domain, which is why we're, we're able to do this project. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just like this ultimate labor of love. Yeah, I hope that people are able to connect with it. I was interviewing uh, Paul Cooperberg uh, recently, and and he was telling me about the history of the Bronze Age of DC and his his works. Not to override yeah. what you're what you're doing, yeah. right. but uh, he had some amazing stories. And one of them was telling me about the '60s and '70s of of comic creation and 
how Batman could appear in World War II with all of these amazing people. And the creator at that time said, it doesn't have to make sense. It's comics. Don't think so hard. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my time at DC, I will say, and it was the new 52 era. And there was so much obsession with like every piece has to fit or like, oh no, you can't use that character because so-and-so has a plan for it. And it's like, man, like, I feel like this should be more fun. Not not to disparage no, DC. No, like no, we we had our we had our fun. Yeah, I still every once in a while they reach out to me and and I'm like, hey, if you let me do a space cabbie comic, like we can talk. Has that happened yet? Not yet. One day I'll break them down. <laughs> Everyone usually asks, what's the wisest piece of advice or what's the most BS piece of advice you've ever received? But what is the second wisest piece of advice that you've received that has stuck with you in your career? Oh, that's a good one. Um it's simple, but when writing, use the environment. I, I was writing uh, Green Lantern Corps, and my editor, editor was Matt Idelson, and he he had two big notes for me. And this was my first superhero gig, like first uh, single issue comics. And he was like, number one, your supervillains all sound like they're just like twirling their mustache all the time. Like, right. Try to make them a little bit more believable. It's like, okay, cool. And then the other thing he said was, you know, your characters just feel like they're floating around in space. And the story is always better when characters are interacting with the things around them. And that can be small, um, but it also can be big, like the setting itself becomes part of the story. And so I've I've always really focused ever since then on like making the characters have real tangible interaction with the space around them. That's got to be difficult, though, as a writer, especially since you're not seeing what's going to be on the page until much later. Yeah. And it I mean, so much of it and this is a broader comic book thing, but, um, you know, comic book scripting. I look at it as like, I am writing a letter to the artist. That's what a script is. And so it's all about me communicating to them as clearly as I can of, of where I'm thinking and you know where the story is taking me, while also understanding that that is just the opening part of a conversation, right? Because the artist then takes that and of course they... They're going to make changes and adapt things, explore the story and bring themselves into it. I kind of just try to like not do anything that's going to make the artist's job harder and give them the space to have as much fun as, as they can have and find their voice in it. You know, it's, it's kind of some of the magic of comics. Like you don't know what it's going to look like. In everything that you've done, when you finished your script and you handed it to whoever the artist was and you got their artwork back. Which artists blew your script out of the water by the art you received? Oh, man. I mean, I have been so fortunate to work with so many great artists. And and I know that sounds like I'm, I'm you know, like I don't want to tell you which of my children is, is my favorite sort of thing. But, I mean, truly, I've just worked with incredible, incredible artists. And I have to say generally, like, the absolute best part of writing comics is when you get an email from the artist with the pages. I'll talk about two particularly stand out. And this is not to say one's you know better than the other, but just that they both did so much storytelling. One is Nate Powell, 
who he was part of the team that won the National Book Award for the March series of books. And he drew uh, Two Dead, T-W-O, Dead, which is a graphic novel that he and I did at Simon & Schuster. That's a true crime book. Man, he just, I think he added about... 50 pages to the book because, you know, I'm always like, I, w- I want to keep it as tight as possible. And I like, I don't want to give you this huge amount of stuff to draw. And he just really expanded it and created these moments. I mean, they're, they're moments of like surreal and like magically realist stuff that comes in that I, I didn't have in the script at all. That was an incredible experience. And then, so Arca is drawn by Jesse Lonergan. Jesse is the most design-centric artist that I've ever worked with. He creates a very elaborate grid structure for every project that he works on. And he will take a page that I script as like a four or five panel page and draw it with like 18 panels. And it works. (laughs) And it not only does it work, but it, it creates this tempo. And so he's really like an incredible auteur director working absolutely like top of his craft, creating this visual experience with this intricate rhythm in it. All I can say is, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate to have a couple of pages of original art from each of those guys up on my walls. What was an early experience where you learned that language had power? Oh, gosh. That's a good one. So I grew up in this teeny, teeny, tiny little town, like I said. And my freshman year of high school, there were three kids in my class. And there was this big debate in the town over, should we close the high school? So there's another town that's like 10 miles away that has, you know, it's like an 800-person Towns like the the city over there. Like, should we close down and send our kids over to the big town? And my dad was on the school board. There were all these people that were just like fighting against the school consolidating. And my dad's not a loud guy and not like he's not overly social. Uh, He's not like a hermit or anything, but he's just, you know, he's not like an outspoken guy. But there was this very heated meeting with the whole town. And I just remember my dad standing up and it was both what he said and the way that he said it. And it was just very calm. And it just really laid out like, yeah, this is this sucks. Like it, it absolutely sucks to lose our school, but we have to do it. And it's going to be the best thing for for the kids and for the town. And he, he swayed it, like ended up, it was what happened. And yeah, it was like, it was scary to go to a new school and all of that, but it was the right thing. And I just remember, you know, watching him do that and think how, how incredible it was that one, that he was brave enough to do that and like had people yelling at him and all that. But two, everyone has one person that inspired them, them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you? Yeah. And this is a very clear thing for me. And I, um, so there's this Vonnegut quote, you shouldn't write for everybody in terms of, you know, thinking about your audience, but you should pick one person that, you know, who has discerning taste and write for them. And so for me, that's always my grandma, Doreen, this is, uh, my, my dad's mom. And she was a writer, a poet and an English teacher. She was just the person that she always put the right book in my hands at the right time. 
she actually like I I was from when I was little little I was writing short stories and she would have me give these stories to her and she would grade them and and like grade them I, you know I look at that now and I just think how incredible it was because as a grandparent you know I'm sure it's like all you want to do is love on your grandkids and tell them they're great and she told me that I wasn't great like she told me I was really bad and like showed me all the ways that I was really bad. Yeah, she was just truly incredible woman. I'm not here without her. And she's still like, she continues. She's She's been gone for quite a few years now. So she gave me, before she passed, she gave me all of her books. I have this library of her books. And part of it is I have the books that she used as a teacher and they have her notes in them. And so I'm continually going and it's like, you know, all right, like I'm, I'm going to go read Moby Dick again, but read it with her notes in it. And and then I'm, I'm still learning these lessons from these notes that, that she took, you know, it's, it's kind of like in a way that she's, she's still here with me. From a professional standpoint, you are a multi-talented and multi-creative person when it comes to many works that you've done that we've talked about here. And I'm sure many more that we haven't had a chance to touch on, which means you have to come back on and talk about your future works as well. And we'll dive into your past once more again too, because we're just scratching the surface. <laughs> so professionally, you're successful on many fronts. Do you consider yourself personally successful? Oh boy. I think that there's a part of me that wants to say no to that. But so I grew up, you know, in the the plains where people are kind of expected to not stick their head up too high. But I just, I always wanted to do great stuff. Like I always I don't know, had aspirations of having some degree of fame or accomplishment or whatever. And I had a lot of people along the way that told me, you know, for various reasons that I wasn't going to make it. And honestly, that's the logical, <laughs> the logical response to, you know, saying you want to write comic books or saying you want to be a novelist. I've literally done the stuff that was my dream when I was a child. And so I try to celebrate that. And yeah, I, I think that I have had a, a really fortunate degree of success. But I also feel like I've kind of only just uh, really clicked into being the writer that I think I'm ultimately going to be. And so I'm, I'm also very excited about the work that I'm producing now and, and the work that I'm going to continue to produce is hopefully I, I keep learning and growing. The reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures? Well, the nice thing about comics is it gives you a lot of practice in dealing with failure. <laughs> because comics is, oh man, quite an industry. I can't even begin to count the number of projects that I've had that have fallen apart or like a project that I thought was going to go huge and then it just didn't quite take off. I think the big thing for me is one, my life is a lot bigger than any project that I work on. And it's like, I've got, I've got my family, I've got my friends, I've got just got a lot of connections in the world, a lot of things that I'm, I'm part of. I've got the, you know, the volunteering that I do that all of that stuff has a lot of meaning and something bad can happen at the office. And I know that I can come home and I've, I've got these great kids to hang out with, but at the same time, like I let it get me a little bit pissed off. <laughs> you know, it's like, you gotta, you gotta have a bit of, a bit of anger to, to keep you going. So I guess that's it. I try to balance like 
just enough rage with keeping a good perspective. The younger generation is looking at your work and they're becoming inspired to be creative in their own way. And the fact that you have the younger generation with you, looking up to you as an inspirational person, maybe you're going to inspire them to be creative in some way, shape or form, whether it's as an author, writer, or something else completely entirely, but you've inspired them in some way. How can they inspire the generation that follows them? You know, I, I think that there's a lot of history of people learning the wrong lessons from successful works. And I'm, you know, I'm not putting myself there, but, you know, I think like particularly uh, you look at someone like Alan Moore, and I, I think we got stuck with kind of a generation of really gross, unpleasant comics just because people didn't get Watchmen. And it's not, it's not to malign uh, the entire generation, but man, there were a lot of bad comics in there. I always say, you know, work on stuff that has real meaning to you. Everything that you work on, it goes out in the world, it touches someone in some way, and it, it changes people. Stories absolutely change people. Creators coming up, I think, just need to interrogate themselves. Like, what is the impact that you want to have? Because if you say that you're not going to have any impact and you can just, you know, work on whatever thing and it doesn't matter, you're lying to yourself. So, yeah, just ask, like, are, are you going to try to have a positive impact or you know, if not, you're, you're going to have a negative impact. If your life was a comic book, what would its title be and what would its soundtrack be? Oh, interesting. Man, title... <laughs> Titles either they're like they're there immediately or man, you just labor at them. I feel like I would I would get stuck with some kind of like farm boy like kind of thing or like kid from the kid from the farm sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, if if I was gonna do it, I'd go with something like really weird like Jackalope, which is the uh the jackrabbit with horns that taxidermists create. I don't know why. I'd I'd figure it out and make it work. I'm trying to think in terms of music. I mean, I feel like I would just put the stuff that I really like on it. So a lot of like like older hip hop, like Pete Rock and Seal Smooth and The Far Side, maybe like some Flaming Lips sprinkled in. Well, Van, I do hate to say it, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. It was my pleasure. Before I let you go, where can we find you? How can we support you? Of course, this Zoop campaign and anything else you'd like to promote? So the the anthology, the Stardust anthology is on Zoop. Uh, that's uh, the website is zoop.gg. Um, you can also, I'm sure, just uh, Google Zoop. And I don't think there are too many other Zoops out there. You can find me, vanjensen.com is the easiest way. Uh, on socials, it's uh, van underscore Jensen. Uh, and I also have a newsletter where I kind of tell stories about lessons that I've learned in storytelling. And uh, that is vanjensen.substack.com. Well, like I said, that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. You can, of course, find this interview and 1,200 plus others because I've been doing this for 15 years on our website, twogeekstalking.com. That's the word two, not the number two, T-W-O taking a page out of your book there or ggtmedia.com but since the website's going through a revamp go to our youtube channel it's a lot more updated because i am only one person that's youtube.com forward slash tgtmedia the podcast is back after 12 or so years two geeks talking.podbean.com or search for two geeks talking on any of your favorite audio streaming services like itunes spotify iHeartRadio, and 
probably about 16 others. I don't know. I don't keep track of all of it, but you can find it anywhere you search. And as I say every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on to Geeks Talking.